All right, well, y'all ready for this? I think it's safe to say that looking at this last year, uh, the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, yesterday at 2 p.m., I got a phone call from Rachel Toon. Many of you will know Rachel. She's one of our favorite guest preachers here at Lake Forest Church. And uh, Rachel was actually scheduled to preach today, so I wasn't surprised to get the phone call from her. I thought, well, maybe we're going to work out some details. I was a little bit surprised when I answered, and she said, Aaron, I've got some bad news. I said, all right, Rachel, hit me. What is it? She said, I tested positive for COVID this morning. <laughs> so with that, my first thought went to, oh, man, bummer, Rachel. I hope the symptoms are really mild. Like, I hope it's not bad, you know. And then like about a millisecond later... <laughs> Oh, dear Lord, that means I'm preaching tomorrow, right? And I started to freak out. <laughs> Rachel was a step ahead of me. She said, don't worry, Aaron. I've already emailed you my notes. Please use any or all of it if you would like. So I sent out a text to our team and our pastors. and said, hey, guys, everyone, just want you to know, Rachel's not going to be preaching. I'm going to be preaching. Let's pray for her. To which one of my fellow pastors wrote this back in the text. He said, oh, I got to find it here. I have it quoted. Well, the good news is Aaron's about to preach his best sermon ever. <laughs> if I had Rachel's notes, I'd sign up to preach too. It's like having Colonel Sanders' secret recipe. Don't worry, Aaron, none of us will tell the people she was supposed to preach. <laughs> now, I won't tell you which Lake Forest pastor sent this message, but his name rhymes with snitch. Rachel, we will miss you today, and we are praying for you. Uh, it's no joking matter. We do hope that the symptoms are mild and that God grants you a speedy recovery. And thanks for hooking me up with the message today. <laughs> well, indeed, COVID and the pandemic is just one of the many reminders in our world that this is not how things were supposed to be, right? This is not how God intended his world to be. These last 12 months have been a year that some have labeled as the apocalypse. And it is an apocalypse in, in the literal sense of the word. The word apocalypse just means a revealing or an uncovering. The devastation of COVID has ranged from the death of loved ones to a crippling of the school system to a struggling economy. This summer we faced a reckoning with injustice and racism that still has deep roots in our society. And if you're honest, if I'm honest, COVID has probably brought to the surface things in our own hearts too. Things that you and I wish were different. A short temper, heightened anxiety, nagging addiction, broken relationships. Wherever you look, outward, inward, around the country, within our own homes, we just can't get around the fact that things are not as they are supposed to be. The world wasn't supposed to be like this. Well, the good news is that the scriptures are not surprised by this reality. In fact, they are quite honest about it. And the Bible really is one long answer to a big, simple question. How is God going to fix it? How is God going to save the world? What's he going to do about everything that's wrong? All the evil and death and sickness, heartache and sin... Indeed, what is he going to do about all of that stuff in you and in me? See, the good news is the scriptures are well aware of this reality, and the Bible is going to speak honestly to it. 
We are in a series called The Whole Story. We've been preaching from the beginning of the Bible. We're going to be going all the way to the end. By the end of this year, we've got a reading plan for those who want to do a little bit of home study during the week on their own. And if the Bible were a Netflix show, today's episode would be a must-see. Because if you miss today's episode, you will make sense of nothing else that comes later in the Bible. This is one of those things that we have to understand if we're going to understand the whole story. So, we've got about 400 years of backstory to cover here in about two minutes to set up today's passage. Y'all ready? Buckle up. Here we go. 400 years. Last week, we heard about a guy named Joseph. Now, this is not the Mary and baby Jesus Joseph, but the Joseph with the fancy coat. Long story short, he's the reason that the little family of Israel ends up leaving the land God gave them and settling in Egypt. Fast forward a few hundred years and we find ourselves in the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, which just means exit or escape. When Genesis ended, Pharaoh, that's the king of Egypt, Pharaoh loved Joseph. Joseph had saved the nation of Egypt. In fact, Joseph had saved the whole world from famine. But now, 400 years later, there's a new sheriff in town, and this Pharaoh is not all that keen on Joseph and his descendants. In fact, this Pharaoh subjects the now nation of Israel to miserable slavery. And to top it all off, as a means of population control, Pharaoh orders the murder of all the firstborn Hebrew boys. They are to be drowned in the river. Well, one pregnant mother can't bear the thought, so she puts her baby in a basket, maybe you know the story, and she prays. And sure enough, baby Moses floats downstream, ironically getting adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. He grows up in Egyptian royalty. One day he kills somebody. That's a whole other story. He runs away. Fast forward 40 years or so. You still with me? All right. God appears to Moses in a bush that burns but does not burn up, and God gives him a job to do. He says, Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and confront Pharaoh and tell him to let my people go. Moses takes a little convincing, but finally God talks him into it. And Moses' confrontation with Pharaoh is similar to kind of a WWF fight. It's it's a cosmic fight night. God strikes Egypt with 10 plagues, each one escalating in intensity and level of annoyance to the previous. There are flies, there are frogs, there's a river that turns to blood. Y'all, it is crazy, crazy stuff. And if you're reading this on your own, you might be thinking, what is going on here, right? And it really only makes sense. I mean, you, if we, as modern people read this, I mean, some modern people like end timesy crazy people read this with all this stuff that it doesn't mean. But if we read this with the context in mind, we realize that these plagues are actually each designed to take a shot at one of the Egyptian gods. There's a god of the river. There's a God of the flies. There's a God of frogs. There's a God of lice. How do you get to be the God of lice? That's, I, I was talking with someone just a minute ago. She's a middle school teacher. She said, you signed up to be an elementary school or middle school teacher. That's how you become God of the lice. Whew. All right, but the point is this. Here's the point, right? Yahweh, that's the God of Israel. Yahweh is going to demonstrate to Pharaoh that he is the one true God. And it's an invitation to Pharaoh, an opportunity for Pharaoh to humble himself and to become a Yahweh worshiper. 
You read these passages, and there is one theme repeated over and over and over again, and it is the heart of Pharaoh. God seems to be after Pharaoh's heart, but Pharaoh will not surrender. With each plague that comes, God gives him another opportunity, and Pharaoh hardens his heart and refuses to bow a knee. Through Moses, God warns that there's one final plague coming, and it is the most intense one yet. It is the death of every firstborn son in Egypt, which might sound a little bit harsh, but remember the backstory? Pharaoh seems to be reaping what he sowed, or rather what the pharaohs have sowed before him. The tension escalates to this final judgment. This is the one plague that will rule them all. And then right in the middle of the story, the scene takes an awkward turn to the left. And all of a sudden, we're reading about all these details about this crazy Thanksgiving dinner that was planned by your crazy Aunt Edna. We all have a crazy Aunt Edna, don't we? I'm sorry, Edna, I don't mean you. I mean a different Edna, okay? This is the chapter on what's called the Passover. And this is our text for the morning. Y'all ready? Let me read this to you. This is from Exodus 12. I'm going to read you about 14 verses. Hang with me. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, so let's pause here. He's already been told about the plague. He's already been told what's coming. Here's what God is going to tell, or here's what Moses is passing on. Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on top, on the top and both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your house and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when, we, when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, get out of here, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord of you as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go. Oh, and by the way, also bless me. Now, the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honor the Lord for the generations to come. This is the word of the Lord. What the heck, y'all? 
Why the creepy Thanksgiving dinner in the middle of one of the most epic stories in all of the Western world, right? Why the specificity? Why do it every year? Why kill a cute, fuzzy little lamb and paint your porch with blood for crying out loud? Those questions are precisely the reason to this day that Jews celebrate the Passover. We are supposed to ask these questions because God wants to teach us something from this story. He wants us to remember something that we oftentimes forget. God tells the Israelites to reenact the Passover every year through this shared meal. So they'll remember how God rescued them from two big problems. You see, the Passover, Passover is really a story of rescue. And there are two things that I want to highlight today that God rescues them from and by extension rescues us from. Two big problems that God's going to solve. Problem number one, note takers, problem number one, here it is. The first problem God rescues them from is outside evil. There are lots of bad guys. And in Exodus, we have most, one of the most epic villains of all, Pharaoh. Outside evil is everything wrong in the world around us. Oppression, injustice, slavery, corrupt systems and leaders, sickness and poverty and death and abuse. And as the New Testament later reveals, this outside evil also includes the wicked realm of Satan and his minions. All this evil around us happens to us, and most of the time we have no control over it. Well, then God comes out after this evil. And when he comes after outside evil, he comes at it with Rambo-like intensity. The theological word for God's solution to problem number one is the word redemption. It literally means to buy back, to redeem back from slavery. In the Exodus narrative, it's also interchangeable with this word rescue. In fact, Moses is going to sing a song. Did you know Moses was a songwriter? He's going to sing a song a couple chapters later of celebration, and it goes like this. He sings, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed our enemies. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You see, there it is. God's a rescuer. He's a redeemer. In the story of Exodus, God brings Israel's, Israel freedom from slavery. He rescues them from big bad Pharaoh, and he will always stand up to evil. God is incapable of tolerating or turning a blind eye to oppression, bondage, and injustice. God hates evil, which actually teaches us something hugely important about how good God actually is. At the beginning of our story, I didn't have time to cover this, but at the beginning of Exodus, we read about God's people suffering in Egypt. And there's this interesting little line. It says that the, the cries of his people went up. You can almost picture them floating up, almost like an offering. The cries of his people went up, and God heard the cries of his people, and he was compelled to act. You see, God hates every kind of suffering but he especially hates the suffering that human beings inflict on one another. Think about suffering in our world today, in your life or in the lives of those you know. We tend to minimize suffering as a way of dealing with it. 
We, we try to downplay it. We try to cope with it. Oh, that's just the way people are, Aaron. Or, you know, he didn't really mean to hurt me. Or, well, I guess I kind of deserve it. But the truth is that suffering is not a part of God's plan. Suffering in God's eyes is never okay. It's never fine. We may cheapen suffering, but God doesn't. God's wrath towards evil is a profound validation that our suffering is seen, that God grieves it, that God cares about it, that evil will not get the last word, and that God will one day extinguish it from existence once and for all. My friends, that is the first good news of the Exodus story. So, so that's problem number one. We get a feel for that. Problem number one, outside evil, God's going to redeem us from it. He's going to free us from it. He's going to deal with it. But that leads to problem number two, which is related to it. Problem number two is inside evil. If Israel's only issue was Egypt, you see, why all these theatrics? Why is the Passover something that they needed to participate in? Why couldn't God just take out his big, was it Thanos ring and just like zap them, right? Just zap them there, the Egyptians are gone, and then everybody rolls out, right? Why not that? Well, because this wasn't just about Pharaoh and his physical bondage. Slavery was Israel's most obvious problem, but it was not their deepest problem. The bigger problem was, was one that the Israelites just could, uh, sorry, the bigger problem wasn't just the bigger problem wasn't one the Israelites could just leave behind in Egypt and walk away from. It was a terminal heart condition, the problem we call sin. Now, if you were with us a couple weeks ago, you'll remember the story of Noah, right? Violence had spread. Remember, violence had spread so vastly around the world, and God was grieved by the violence. And so he decided to wipe the dry erase board clean. He was going to wipe it away. He was going to wash it away with a flood. But he knew he needed to preserve human beings. So he picked Noah and Noah's family. And maybe, just maybe, this would do the trick. But as we discovered, the sin virus, the sin problem was in Noah's heart as well. And the same problems happened all over again. Sin is a very churchy word. And often folks have a sort of knee-jerk reaction to it. But what the Bible says about sin is not designed to bog you down in some kind of eternal guilt trip. It's designed to set you free, to cut out the cancer that's killing you. I love the story about the London Times who once invited its readers to respond to this question. The question was, what's wrong with the world today? And the great Christian author G.K. Chesterton responded as follows. He said, dear sir or madam, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> and that's the truth, isn't it? Scripture recognizes that the evil we experience isn't just outside of us. It isn't just out there around us. It is also in us. And sin is a whole lot more destructive than just eating more chocolate or binge-watching Tiger King. Sin isn't an occasional mistake or a bad decision. It is a condition, and it is a deadly one. It's our seemingly natural inclination to mess things up or break stuff like promises and relationships and even our own well-being. Our problem isn't just that we need more practice or education or more positive thinking or more freedom. It's that in our very bones, we want the things that destroy us and the people around us. 
We aren't just victims of evil. We, at times, are also the source of it. We wound and hurt others because of the sin in us. And if the good news is that God will extinguish evil, remember problem number one? If the good news is that God will one day extinguish evil once and for all, then the bad news is that that includes you and me. You see the problem? The evil isn't just out there. It's tangled up in me, which means that when the incinerating wrath of God comes down to deal with evil once and for all, it's heading straight in my direction. So, so what hope is there? What in the world are we to do? Well, the Bible says we celebrate. We celebrate because God hasn't just rescued us from problem number one. He has also rescued us from problem number two, from the evil inside of us. And the fancy theological word for this in the Exodus passage is the word propitiation. Everybody say it, ready? Propitiation. Did you spit into your mask? Did you spit on your neighbor at home? Okay, propitiation. Why is it that all the important theological words end with shun, right? That's kind of, well, you, you can impress grandma at lunch with that. Propitiation, or also known as atonement, maybe you're familiar with that word, is how God zaps the sin without incinerating the sinner. The Hebrew word for this comes from the verb to cover, literally to cover over. So it's literally how God covers over the sin in us so that we can be in relationship with him. I was trying to think about how to illustrate this, and I had one of those old guy moments right? By the way, I'm a Gen Xer. I got my first AARP advertisement for Gen X this week, y'all. What is up with that? I got, I, is that a new, I'm a new club on part. Anyway, do y'all remember Whiteout? Did you use Whiteout when you were younger? Okay, here's, here's how Whiteout works, right? You, you, you type up your document, and then it, it was too costly to go and type it up again, right? And, and so you take this little jar of white paint, and you would paint up. Y'all remember Whiteout, right? I used to love Whiteout. Whiteout covered over the mistake. That's the image of the word here for atonement. God literally covers over our sin. We're going to talk about that a lot more next week. Excuse me, in two weeks. But here's why it's a big deal in the Passover story. Sin is costly. Sin does real damage and somehow needs to be covered over. It needs to be eradicated. In the Passover, this eradication happens through sacrifice. A perfect spotless lamb dies in the place of the family, and its blood, get this, covers the family within the home so the wrath of God, the death agent of death, will pass over their sin and not destroy them. The point of all this is not that God is angry and vengeful. The point of this story is that he is merciful that he has provided a way, that he is a rescuing God. You see, God knows that sin is going to kill us. It's both in the immediate sense, in our relationships, in our families, in our careers, but also in an eternal sense, physically and spiritually. The wages, the results of sin is always death. But God takes the initiative to bring us home, to root out what is killing us, He makes a way for us to come back to him. He goes after the sin in our lives with a fury so that we might truly live. 
It is because of what God does, not any precautions you or I take, that the destroyer is not allowed to enter your home and strike you down. Now, this truth, this propitiation atonement, is probably one of the hardest biblical concepts to wrap our minds around in the Western world. Western people struggle with this. We love our little fuzzy animals and our pets. We don't just uh, have much, we don't have much of a cultural understanding for this sacrifice. And we have to ask ourselves this question, okay, I don't like this, Aaron, this is a little bit uncomfortable, but why is this in the Bible anyway? And, and why do we still care? You've probably noticed that as Christians, we don't celebrate the Passover, right? I mean, Easter is coming up. I'm not going to call Publix and say, hey, uh, meat department, I need a live one this time, right? That's just not going to be a call I make this year. But what is it? Why is it that this is important? Well, here's why it's important. The Passover was just the beginning of the story, the beginning of God's answer to two big problems. And it sets the stage for the end of the story, the story that we will get to when we come to the person of Jesus. You see, when we get to Jesus and the New Testament, God's MO doesn't change. There is not a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New. God has always been a merciful God, always been a rescuing God. And he is always the one who takes the initiative. And it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that both the outside evil and inside evil are dealt with once and for all. See, Jesus has defeated outside evil. It was the number one problem, and he took care of it. The New Testament tells us that Jesus came to, quote, destroy the devil's work. Don't you love that? And that he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. See, there's that redeeming word. Because uh, of the cross, evil is in its death throes. And when Jesus comes back, my friends, one day, he will finish the job once and for all. That's what his second coming is about. His second coming is good news. And this is good news for us today. It was good news for the Jews in Jesus' day, but what no one saw coming was that Jesus would also solve the problem of inside evil. For those of you familiar with the New Testament and the Gospels, you might know this story. But when the Gospels begin, the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew, tells us that a baby was born, only this baby wasn't born in a basket, he was born in a manger. But similarly, like Pharaoh 1,500 years earlier, for this baby Jesus, another king, a king named Herod, was also ordering the death of all the Hebrew boys. And Jesus and his parents would have to flee. They would have to run away. And of all places they would run away to, where do they run to? Egypt. How interesting. Years later, Jesus would return to Nazareth And at the very beginning of his ministry, his cousin, John the Baptist, would see him coming. And do you know what he would say? John knew who he was. John knew his name was Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Of all the titles to give this Jesus, why the Lamb? John wasn't mincing words. He knew, he knew that one day Jesus would give his life as the sacrificial lamb so that all who are under Christ, all those who have been propitiated, all those who are covered over by his blood would not die and would have an eternal kind of life. 
Well, fast forward 30 years. Excuse me, fast forward three years. <laughs> fast forward three years. And it's the night before Jesus is going to be executed. Jesus gathers with his disciples in an upper room to celebrate what? The Passover meal. Only instead of retelling the Egypt story from Exodus 12, he adapts the script. He, he doesn't grasp for the usual lamb that was served. There was no lamb. He was the lamb. But instead, Jesus takes some bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body broken for you. Similarly, he, he takes a cup of wine and, and after giving thanks for it, he passes around and he says, everyone, I want you to drink of this. This is the blood of my new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. You see, Jesus knew exactly what he was doing in that moment. Jesus was hyperlinking all the way back to Exodus 12 and the Passover and the rescue that God had promised that he would bring about once and for all for his world. And he was doing it in this very moment through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. The blood of the perfect Passover lamb, the once and for all sacrifice poured out for the sins of the world. Now, this is where we come in, right? Because the truth is, y'all, truth is, let's just be honest for a minute. The truth is we all need to be rescued, don't we? I mean, in one way or another, we are all in need of rescue. I was thinking about just my own driving record, right? Because I had to renew my insurance. I was thinking about those points on my driving record. I won't tell you where the points come from, but I do have a lead foot. But you and I have both racked up eternally damnable speeding tickets, haven't we? A million DMV points on our record. And the judge, who is just and fair, finds us for doing 90 in a school zone. I didn't really do that. But here's the game changer. Here's the game changer. Our judge not only passes judgment and writes the fine, but then he proceeds to pay for your ticket and mine. And he cosmically trades driving records with you and me. That is the meaning of Passover. That's who Jesus is. And that's what he has done for us. He has died for us. He has died instead of us. And he has thrown open the gates to abundant life. So, so, the question for us this morning is simply this. Where do you, where do I need the rescue of God? Don't let this question just pass by you, but hold on to it a minute. Where do you, where do I need God's rescue? Little moment of confession for me. You know, COVID's been quite a year for me. Um, it, it has been quite the revealing of some stuff underneath the surface. Has it been that for you? And there's just some stuff that God has brought to the surface that I've realized once and again, I need some help with. I need some rescuing. I need some forgiving. I need some healing. And I can either do what Pharaoh did, and I can stuff it down, and I can say, no, no, and my heart can turn hard again. 
Or I can allow God to pierce my heart there, to allow me to see that sin, and I can come to him knowing that he is my rescuer, he is my redeemer. What is that for you? I mean, honestly. Is there some anger and resentment in your life? Is there nagging guilt for that thing that just nobody knows about? Past, present, I don't know. Is there hatred of neighbor or spouse or friend or family member? Is there a, 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 just some kind of habit, some kind of a, something that's just got a grip on you and you can't break free? Where do you need God's rescue today? You know, the season uh, that we're in as the church right now is referred to as the season of Lent. And Lent is a time where the church throughout the centuries has practice this, this habit that we call confession. We, we don't confess because we just feel so bad and we're just got to beat ourselves up. We, we don't confess as some kind of, uh, it, you know, it, it, economic exchange with God. We confess because confession is simply telling the truth about me to a God who already knows that truth. And if you feel stuck, if you feel weighed down, if you are in need of rescue, I want to invite you to consider confession as a step for you to take today. For those who have never considered this invitation of forgiveness and redemption in Jesus, you can simply pray, God, I want to know this forgiveness. I want to confess to you my need of you. You can do that right now at home, even here in the room. In a moment, we're going to receive the elements of communion. I'm going to invite you in your seats to take your cup. I'm going to invite you at home to serve one another if you like. But what if you let this act of communion be your confession of your sin to God? What if as you take that juice, you receive again the grace and forgiveness that only Jesus could offer?